We see ourselves as your people, a uh, people who want to preview to the rest of the world what hope and peace and love and joy can look like. And so, Father, we ask that even as we enter into a familiar topic this morning, that you would refresh our minds and our souls on how exactly we can do that as your people, how we can preview, how we can anticipate love that will be fully known when your son returns. Amen. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so here we are in the Advent Reflection on Love. It is both a grand and amazing and yet familiar concept, uh, perhaps maybe too familiar. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was wrestling with what more I could say about love that you probably have not already heard. Of the four Advent topics, this one is probably the most familiar to us, the most commercialized, uh, the one that we are saturated with. And as I was thinking about that, and as I was thinking about some reading that I had been doing this week, and even thinking about a past sermon on the subject of love, uh, the warning I wanted to offer to us as a congregation is that maybe we've become a little too familiar with the idea of love. And I thought of uh, a good friend of mine named Colin Barrett. Uh, he is uh, uh, an engineer, a uh, computer engineer, and a former teacher in the Memphis uh, city area, along with his wife, Jenny, who's a teacher. They're good friends of Laura and mine, uh, and we knew them back at uh, Cedarville University. And during Colin's junior year, uh, his mother was succumbing to a, an aggressive form of cancer. Um, and uh, that year, we made a trip to visit his family um, and to uh, joined the funeral after she passed. Um, but as her condition was worsening, I remember being in her, uh, I'm sorry, I remember being in his dorm room, Collins, uh, and speaking with him and asking just how he was doing. And I remember, I remember him looking right at me, just kind of shaking his head and saying, I'm used to it. And when I think about that, think about your mother being on her deathbed and, and being used to it. Now, the reason that he said that was because his whole life, uh, his mother had been suffering with cancer. And gradually over time, through no fault of his own, not really through any choice of his own, he'd become accustomed to that sobering reality. And I think, family, that there are parallels there to the way that we think about love. I think that we have become accustomed to the weight and the significance of love in our own lives. And unfortunately, I think we've come to misunderstand love um, as a result. And so just as Colin was unfortunately accustomed to this sobering reality, I pray that we would realize uh, that we've become maybe too familiar with the idea of love. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to remind us what love is. I want us to try to reclaim its meaning I want us to cherish it. Because I want us to remember what it is. I want us to remember where it comes from. 
And I want us to remember, just as we were reading during uh, the Advent readings that uh, Zeke led us in, that love is ultimately revealed by Jesus himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at love um, in four different parts this sermon. First, we're going to look at love discovered, where the verb love comes from. Then we're going to look at how love is misunderstood. We're then going to see how love is demonstrated. And then finally, love lived. So as we open this first section, as many of you know that after Christmas, we will be headed into a new season, not Epiphany, not Super Bowl season, but a season of New Year's resolutions. Uh, anybody planning on making any New Year's resolutions this year? We got one brave person, Shauna. Oh, we got Justin. Okay. It's a thorny topic. Uh, most of us probably have made a New Year's resolution at some point in our life, and I think it's probably fair to say that most of the time it involves some kind of health or exercise-related subject. Uh, I remember at Cedarville, when I made some of my first New Year's resolutions, I wanted to be in the gym two or three times a week, and so I would show up in January that second semester, and I'd be surrounded by other students and faculty and staff who probably made a similar resolution. Uh, And so it was hard finding space on the exercise machines and the the bench press because there were so many other people in line. But usually by March or April, there wasn't that same line. And I'm not saying that because I was there in March and April, (laughs) because I wasn't. And I think we all know what we're talking about here, right? That there's this thing about New Year's resolutions that, uh, as well-intended as they can be, oftentimes it's hard to, to see them through. And so some of us may make a New Year's resolution this year not to make any resolutions because we're so tired of not fulfilling these resolutions. Um, I think one common one aside from exercise, though, is the idea of reading the Bible through in one year. I think many of us have probably tried to do that at some point. Some of us have succeeded. Some of us have not. Um, And I want to point this one out because I think it helps direct us to this subject of love. Um, I think it's fair to say that when you look at a schedule like this, as well intended as it might be, uh, it's hard to see it all the way through. And I think it's also fair to say that most of us usually struggle at around the same point. Um, So imagine yourself making this commitment, maybe this January, uh, you're sitting there, you decide that because your your quiet times haven't been as rich as you wanted them to be, or, or maybe as consistent, you make a commitment to read the Bible all the way through. Maybe you look up a plan like this one, or you buy a devotional, Uh, And if you're really courageous here at Mac, you share it with your Mac group as a source of accountability so that they know that you're going to read the Bible through in a year. And then around that same time, March or April, uh, maybe one of your pesky Mac group members asks you, hey, Jonathan, how's that uh, Bible reading project coming along? And more than likely, you're probably going to answer it's not because you haven't been able to see it through. And I would venture to say that you weren't able to see it through. I wasn't able to see it through. Many of us didn't finish because we hit Leviticus, (laughs) right? (laughs) Leviticus is where one-year Bible reading plans go to die. (laughs) It is so jarring to go from the engrossing, immersive narrative in Genesis and Exodus where you're not taught the values of God's kingdom, you're just shown them in a beautiful way. And these stories are headlined by an all-star cast of patron saints like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Miriam and all these people that we look up to. 
And then you jump into Leviticus and it's page after page after page of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's the author of The Message, uh, which is a a Bible translation that's very simplified, uh, he actually suggests to his congregation that they skip Leviticus in their reading, sort of. Uh, He says that they should come back. Um, And maybe after Judges, so that you see what happens when the people of God don't follow the rules in Leviticus, maybe after you've read all the way through the Bible. Um, But either way, what he suggests is that before you skip the book of Leviticus, just for practical reasons, he wants to make sure that you read a specific verse in that book. It's the 18th verse of the 19th chapter. And I would love it if somebody would look that verse up for us, and I will bring the mic to them. Again, it's Leviticus chapter 19, verses 18. It's like one of those Bible drills in Awana. I'm looking for that overeager student. Oh, Joanne's got it. We've got the overeager student right here. Thanks, Joanne. Looking for gold stars. Um, Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We catch that? You shall not take vengeance on your neighbor, but you shall love him as yourself. This is the very first time, not that the word love is used, but that the word love is used as a verb in the Bible. This is the sentence that we are maybe too familiar with, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. This verse, if you can commit it to memory, is the thread that ties all of scripture together. It is quoted up and down the Bible, Old and New Testament. This is where that phrase comes from. And I want us to get that. I want us to get that even in a dry book like Leviticus, one that appears to be dry. We see the heart of, of God's people and what we're supposed to be about. Now, I don't want to give Leviticus that bad of a rap, though. I think it's important for us to understand what Leviticus is to better understand what's going on in this verse. It's not just a dry book of rules. It is a divinely delivered survival guide for the Hebrew people at that time. Now, you have to keep in mind that when this book was written and delivered to the people, it was primarily an oral tradition passed down from one generation to the other, while the Hebrews were on a 40-year wilderness pilgrimage. God was using that time to refresh the mind of his people who had for 400 years been living in a pagan Egyptian culture, brainwashed by the values and systems of those people. And that was shown when they tried to go into Canaan the first time, but they were too afraid. They were too afraid of fulfilling the promise that God had given them. And so God sent them on this journey for 40 years to raise up a new generation who weren't Uh, affected by the values of the Egyptians, but were instead taught for a generation to depend on God and for his deliverance. And if you look at all those rules and regulations in there, you see that they're very fundamental to everyday life. They go after things like diet, nutrition, hygiene, medicine, animal, sex, and other moral behavior. And almost all of those rules were useful and necessary to keep the Hebrew people distinct from the morally pagan and chaotic culture that they were about to enter into, one that was marked by child sacrifice, marked by other dangerous behaviors that if the Hebrews were to accept, they would not only be accepting the evil, but they would be losing 
their role as God's people, people who would preview to the rest of the world what following God looked like. So imagine that you're one of those Hebrews reading through Leviticus. You're working your way through the book and you come upon chapter 19, verse 18. Maybe you're reading it, maybe someone is reciting these rules to you. And you catch that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. As jarring as it is to go from Genesis and Exodus into Leviticus, it must have been equally as jarring to go from all these do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts, to a phrase like that, love your neighbor as yourself. You would probably stop, you'd probably pause, you might even look up at the stars in the middle of the wilderness, and you would compare the beauty of the verse that you were just read and the stars that were in the sky. It was that meaningful, and that's why it shows up again and again throughout Scripture. There is no single word except for the verb love that is quoted more often and in so many different contexts than that verb in Leviticus throughout the Bible. It is a deeply personal verb. It is a verb that is centered in community. It's at the heart of who we are as a church. And I want to just show you how that word is used again and again throughout all of Scripture. We see Solomon using it where he describes love as strong as death and as flashes of fire. He invokes the Levitical metaphor and urges his son to bind love to his forehead and to write love onto the tablets of his heart. David, in describing this verb love, exclaims God's love because God heard David's cry and saved him from his enemies. We see the prophets speak about this verb love as well, how Jeremiah speaks of God's love as everlasting and faithful. And how Zephaniah tells of God's love quieting the fears of his people. We read that verse during our Advent reading earlier this service. We also see it in the Gospels, where Matthew and Mark actually quote the Levitical passage through Jesus. And by having Jesus quote that passage, it elevates it. It gives it primacy. It gives it great weight. And after Matthew and Mark, there isn't a single New Testament author who fails to quote that verb, love, afterwards. It is used repeatedly over and over again in books throughout the New Testament, such as the epistles, where we see Paul commanding the Corinthians to cloak everything that they do in love, which is not to be arrogant or boastful, but instead it hopes and endures in all things. Paul also encourages the church in Ephesus to express genuine love to one another through patient, humble, gentle bearing with one another. Peter likewise urges his readers to love each other earnestly with a family love like brothers and sisters and out of a pure heart. That is what love is. That is where love comes from, family. And that brings us to the book in the Bible that probably speaks to love more than any other, the one that we quoted at the beginning of the sermon, and that is the book of 1 John. After the Psalms and Proverbs, after the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, We reach John's letter, and despite how often the verb love is used in all those books, John's letter probably outdoes all of them. That single sentence that we went to back in Leviticus, John uses that like a mustard seed to bear a great harvest in his book. But when you take a look at how he starts, he isn't simply exclaiming God's love. He's actually wrestling with a kind of messed up congregation. In fact, if you look at some of the words and phrases that he used, you'll see that his congregation was pretty disturbed. He describes them in some pretty harsh ways. He uses words like lie, hate, 
and children of the devil. He points out their failure to love their fellow Christians in chapter three, verse 10, how these people are deceiving themselves in chapter one, verse eight, and how they refuse to help people in need. He says, little children, let us love not in word, but in deed. In fact, John even uses the antichrist word, not once, not twice, but three different times in warning this congregation. And he uses the word sin in some form almost 20 times in just five short chapters. This is not your ideal congregation. This is one that is struggling and wrestling with what it looks like to be a people who love one another. Now, Eugene Peterson has also, uh, in speaking about love, described it as one of the slipperiest words in the language. I really like that phrase. And I think it gets to how a congregation like John's, how a church like ours, how any group of people can misunderstand love as it was taught in Leviticus, how it was revealed in Jesus, and use it for our own purposes. And I can give you an example of that. I can show you how even in my life, uh, the word love has very different meanings depending on the context. uh, And I don't think that that's always uh, such a good thing. Uh, When... Uh, Laura and I were dating, uh, we did not use the word love uh, at all. We did not want to say to each other, uh, Laura, I love you, without having something meaningful connected to that word. We wanted to have a commitment in place. We wanted to know that we were committed to each other before we uh, even thought of using a word like that. Um, I wouldn't even buy her red flowers because I didn't want to confuse uh, any suggestion that I was going to use the word love cavalierly or capriciously. I wanted to make it clear that that word meant something. And the first time uh, that I used that word was uh, when we got engaged, because at that point, we had made a commitment. At the same time, uh, as, as happy as I am that we did that, I also used the word love to describe food and to describe sports teams and to describe all sorts of other stuff. And that's kind of strange given uh, the sacrifice that Laura and I made and yet the everyday way that I use that word. And I'm not saying that we can't use the word love uh, to describe some of those things. What I am trying to show and suggest is that maybe the way that we use word is the word love is a little slippery. Love is probably more than any other word vulnerable to commercialization, to cliche, and to non-meaning. Think of all the Hallmark cards and the commercials that we're just being flooded with right now. Oftentimes, love is used by a person like me in the same conversation in self-contradicting ways. Sometimes it's used seriously. Sometimes it's used frivolously. Sometimes it's used soberly. Sometimes it's used sentimentally. Sometimes we use it to apologize to someone. Sometimes we use it to accuse them. Sometimes we use the word thoughtfully. Sometimes we use it to tease. Sometimes we use the word worship to love a holy God. And sometimes we use it as a euphemism, excuse me, for idolatry and for addiction. Love can reveal the intimacies of our heart And it can also be used and abused as a cover for every kind of lie and deceit. But perhaps worst of all, I think it's fair to say that an incalculable amount of violence, both emotional and physical, 
stems from relationships which claim the pretense of love. And if we're not convinced of that, all we have to do is look at what's going on in society right now and think of all the relationships that were defined by abuse and then think how often this word love was likely used. That's a perversion family. That's what we mean when we say this word is slippery. That's likely what the congregation that John was speaking to was wrestling with. They understood and used the word love, but they didn't grasp it. They didn't have it at their core. What they thought of love ultimately was what I would refer to as when we empty others to fill ourselves. Essentially what love had become for them, what love is often for many of us, is all about who we are, about the self, about me, about getting satisfaction and what I need, which obviously cuts against the very core of what was spoken about in Leviticus, loving your neighbor as yourself. But I think if we're honest, family, when most people are trying to think about love and how they use love in their circumstances, it's really about getting more for themselves, about using other people to get ahead and to move forward in life. So what does this mean for us as a church here? We're called to tell others about the love of God. We're reminding each other every week in Mac group and discipleship to love our neighbors. We are supposed to be like a shining city on a hill that's supposed to be a beacon for love. And yet this word is so slippery and so confusing and so misused. How do we get back to what love is supposed to be? What does John use in his book to teach his congregation about what love is supposed to be. And that's where we reach the third part of this sermon. And we see what John does. He doesn't give a definition. He doesn't go to a dictionary. Because in a dictionary, you won't find the ways to practice love. You'll get a working definition, but you're not going to be able to see how love works in everyday life. Instead of using a definition, then John points his congregation to a name, to a person, and that is Jesus. He says in 1 John 3.16, we know love by this. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And why should we love in this kind of radical way, this sacrificial way? John provides the answer here as well. We love because he first loved us. Family, if we can dwell on those two truths right there, we can get back to the heart of what Leviticus is teaching. We can be the people of God, just like they were training to be in our own context here, in our own community, in our own families. And I think a helpful way to do that is not just to look at these verses, but to look at how Jesus himself taught love how he showed love, and also how he lived it. One of the ways that Jesus taught love was the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10. After a religious leader approached Jesus and asked what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said, you must love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you will live. So that religious leader, like a typical uh, intelligent lawyer-like person, tried to find a loophole. And he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus teaches this parable. 
He teaches it in response to that question seeking a loophole. And in so doing, he shows that love looks like unmerited, spontaneous compassion towards people you are historically prejudiced against, people who are your generational enemies. That's what love looks like. That's who your neighbor is. Neighbor is a broad term. It includes even the people who we consider our enemies. And when you think about the fact that we are being taught here by Jesus to love our enemies, I think we see that even the idea of enemy doesn't make sense when we're fulfilling what Christ is calling us to. That's just what Jesus teaches about love. That's an example. But he also shows it. And he shows it in John 13, the night that he's going to be crucified. After he'd been welcomed into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, King of the Jews, blessed is he. After cleansing the temple, after declaring that he would die and rise again three days later, he finds his disciples bickering about who will sit at his right hand. They've been doing it all the way to Jerusalem. They're doing it while they're in Jerusalem because they are They have fervor that they will one day have power and authority. And Jesus in his wisdom recognizes that they do not understand what it means to love in the kingdom of Christ. And so what he does is he enters the room. He takes a bowl that would have been left there for servants to use. He pulls it to the side. And as the disciples are bickering, he takes his outer garment off. He begins to kneel. He takes their shoes off which are likely dirty and bloody and filthy. Think about streets back then. They're not swept and plowed, kind of like our streets here. And he begins to pull their sandals off and to take that blanket, that towel, and clean their feet. Now picture this family. This is someone who literally into Jerusalem, people were laying blankets down before him so that his feet wouldn't touch the ground, recognizing him as king. And yet that man, that God, is kneeling before his disciples, the people who would betray him, the people who would abandon him in only hours. And he's washing their feet. Now, I had the opportunity uh, to experience a a foot washing firsthand when I was in high school. Um, I was a part of a camp uh, that was very, very intentional, not just about exposing kids to being out in the outdoors and doing things like canoeing and splunking and climbing and backpacking, but every day we would spend at least an hour in the word out in the woods. And it was a really meaningful experience. Uh, This particular camp was made up of leaders who attended the camp regularly as a small group. Um, And you really just develop a bond with these people. Some of them I'm still in touch with today, and that was almost uh, 15 years ago. And at the end of the week, uh, after living on power bars and sleeping out in the rain and just kind of grinding through the week together. You come to the camp leader's house and you have a bunch of normal food and you take a shower and it's just a great experience. Um, And at the very end of the week, uh, the leaders, the adult leaders who were in college brought the, those of us in high school down and they brought us to the basement of this person's house there were some candles and some lights and some bowls and some towels, and those leaders began to uh, wash our feet. And I can't tell you how meaningful it is to have someone do that. Uh, and that's not Jesus, right? Those are college students who are trying to model to us what it looks like to be uh, the people of God and the people of God who love. Um, and, and what they said at the end of their time of doing that was what Jesus said. 
um, to, to, to do things just like he had done. And so the high school students began to spontaneously wash each other's feet. And it was such a cool experience because that was, it was not planned. It was just an, an, an opportunity for the people of God to show love to one another. And that's what Jesus is modeling here. That's what he's showing. And the last example I want to give is, of course, Christmas. This is a, probably the greatest example of all. Jesus, who was God, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, born as a man, maturing in favor and stature with God, becoming obedient even to the point of death, as Paul says in Philippians. This is what we mean when we say, for God so loved the world, in John chapter 3. When John is teaching that God is love, when we see that here in the Christmas story, we're getting the closest thing to a definition for love. If you can imagine that kind of sacrifice from God, you can also imagine the kind of sacrifice we're called to as his people. So earlier I talked about how uh, love is defined um, as emptying others to fill ourselves. And I think it's clear that that's not right. Um, And I think we know that, but I think if we're honest, many of the ways we treat people matches that description. What Jesus is teaching us in these three examples is not that we empty others to fill ourselves, but that instead we empty ourselves to fill others. That's the closest thing that we can get to a broad concept of love. That's what it looks like. And if we as the church, as people are doing that, we are going to fulfill our responsibility as the people of God to be about his business in this world. If we are looking for opportunities to empty ourselves, to serve sacrificially and radically for the benefit of others, we're going to end up looking a lot like Jesus. So what does this mean for us practically today? Quite frankly, I wrestled with the application of this sermon a lot. I did not want to give you a specific take home because I think even now I'm hoping that your mind is racing with relationships and situations and people in your life that you know uh, need some love. And you know that maybe you haven't loved uh, in a way that we've been talking about so far. But I do want to leave us with some ideas that can hopefully push us in the right direction. Uh, St. Augustine once described love this way. He says, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sorrows of men. So what I'm asking us to do as a family is to have those hands, those feet, those eyes, those ears. And I want to give us an example of how that happened this week. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Leon was going to be preaching today. Um, But Leon was kind of busy. He was caring for Jalen. And it was cool because on my own, I had asked Leon to uh, have the opportunity to preach today, not knowing that he was uh, pretty burdened with a lot of stuff that was going on this week. Um, And you think about Jalen and and his story and, and what he's been through this week. Leon already said it well. This is a, a community leader, an athlete, uh, a young man who is trying to honor the Lord. And just look at how our church uh, made sacrifices to come around him and care for him. You had Joseph show up 
very early to be a caretaker um, and to be a friend. You had Leon, um, who arrived and made sure that the busy doctors and the nurses did not push along Jalen back to his home while he was dealing with active seizures. You had Nate and Laura, excuse me, and other medical professionals who were giving advice out of their busy schedule to care for that brother. Each of these people were finding ways to empty themselves to fill someone else. They were all loving and they were showing it in a different way. That's what we're called to family. We're not going to know what the situation's going to look like. We're not going to know what day it's going to happen. But opportunities will happen. And I'm grateful for Joseph and Leon and Nate and Laura and the others who are able to serve and care in their own ways. And I'm grateful for Jalen and how his love for us is being reciprocated back to him. And I'm grateful for how our congregation has taken on that opportunity to show God's love. And that's all I'm asking us to do. I'm asking us to look uh, at what Jesus says here in John 13. I'm sorry, I actually don't have that up on the screen. Um, But he says this, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The way that those men and women cared for Jalen is an example. Many of you know examples in your own life. Um, And as you go forward and as you seek to show love, remember that you're not doing it um, in a way that will not reap benefits. You're doing it as a part of a larger church community that just like the Hebrews in Leviticus, we're seeking to preview what God's restoration will look like one day, what we are longing for in Advent. And as I was trying to encourage us and think about a, uh, a word that would lead us to be that kind of people who would, who would have that kind of preview to the rest of the world, I thought of this song uh, by Josh Garrels. Oops. It's called O Day of Peace. And I just want to read it to you. I encourage you to look it up. But I think this song gets after uh, the, the hope and restoration that we long for uh, this Advent and how our love can preview that to other people. O day of peace that dimly shines through all our hopes and prayers and dreams. Guide us to justice, truth, and love delivered from our selfish schemes. May swords of hate fall from our hands, our hearts from envy find release. Till by God's grace, our warring world shall see Christ's promised reign of peace. Then shall the wolf dwell with the lamb, nor shall the fierce devour the small. As beasts and cattle calmly graze, a little child shall lead them all. Then enemies will learn to love. All creatures find their true accord. The hope of peace shall be fulfilled. For all the earth shall know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Christmas is all about your love bursting forth like light into darkness and melting the icy hold of sin on our hearts. 
We confess we are often blinded, though not by your light, but by consumerism and greed and selfishness and oppression, and even by our own busy schedules. We're blind to the work you're doing all around us. Father, would you help us? Would you open our eyes? Help us to see and respond to Advent differently this year. Give us the strength to resist the lure of getting more and more and more in a world that so many have so little, just like the kids were teaching us earlier this morning. Father, would you equip us to use this season thoughtfully to cherish your birth, to remind ourselves of your love, and to consider how we can do your will on earth as it is in heaven. When you broke into human history, when you shouldered uh, the, the weight of sin, you showed us a different way, a way of reconciliation and redemption and resurrection. And so as we celebrate how you came, help us remember why you came and to live and love differently as a result. Father, may we be encouraged by the truth of your word this morning. Amen.